Good afternoon. It is Thursday, the 2nd of June, 2022, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your hosts today are Debbie Evans and myself, Brian Derrish, and we're delighted to be joined by Mark Anderson. Uh, Mark is uh, in the depths of Arkansas. We'll hear a little bit more about that in a minute. But uh, let's kick off with the fact that uh, we've got some exciting uh, celebrations coming up. I decided to go with this very uh, happy image here. And of course, many people are going to have a really excellent uh, few days over the weekend, provided the UK weather holds out. Uh, but this was the headline from ITV News, Queen's Platinum Jubilee Weekend Celebrations, All You Need to Know. But we want to add a bit to that because uh, we've got a suspicion it's going to be a great weekend to bury bad news. And uh, why have I thought about that particular aspect? Well, uh, some of you, going back to 2001, might remember this lady, Jo Moore, uh, who made the mistake of suggesting that uh, it was a good day to bury bad news um, after a particular world event. Uh, but she was caught out and ultimately had to resign. But the point was there that when uh, the international media are very busy, it is a good day to start to hide the things that uh, you don't really want to talk about. And that perhaps leads us on very nicely to having a look at the uh, BBC, <coughs> excuse me, website, which UK Column has been tracking over a number of weeks now. And what we've been pointing out to our viewers is that uh, the BBC coverage of the Ukraine war has been falling and falling from the front page. Uh, now, this uh, is a screenshot from earlier this morning. You might not even be able to see the sole uh, link through to Ukraine. Let's highlight it. It's this greyed out box here. Now, normally, uh, when you see something greyed out in a computer sense, it means that you can't actually activate it. Whether that's the agenda or not, we don't know. But this is the only little indication you get that the BBC is still reporting Ukraine. Why do we suggest that they don't want to say too much? Well, we think it's because it is very clear now that the Russians are, uh, are winning and quite substantially. And of course, this doesn't fit the BBC uh, narrative. But if you do click the link, uh, this is what it takes you through to. And of course, I'd say a very carefully crafted image in order to give us, um, what is this a bit like? It's a bit like a movie, isn't it, Debbie, do you think? It kind of reminds me of crisis actors, isn't it? Maybe Hollywood are in the background Hollywood somewhere. in the background, yeah. Mm. So very emotive uh, uh, header image there. But uh, this is where we get interested in what the BBC says, because the little sub-headline is Russia trying to break Ukraine's eastern defence lines. That's according to the uh, local governor. But of course, Russia's not trying to break those eastern defences. It's already broken them. So this is uh, misinformation from the BBC. And if we have a look at this little headline tucked away, it says fighting is raging in the key city of Severodonetsk, which is now largely under the control of Russian troops. But the reality is that many of Ukraine's forces are retreating, surrendering, refusing to fight, and they're increasingly outspoken against Zelensky. So this is very carefully crafted stuff by the BBC to uh, try and give the impression that all is going well in the uh, war in Ukraine. 
Uh, Mark, if I can just bring you in here to comment, because I see from uh, American Free Press that you've had quite a lot of coverage on Ukraine, and that includes sheer propaganda from the West. Uh, what are your thoughts? Um, we ran an article not too long ago by John Friend about how a uh, the remains of a missile would be found, and they would say it's a uh, a spent Russian ordnance, but the uh, uh, serial numbers and identification information showed that it was not a Russian ordinance at all, that it looked like a prop. And there's been all sorts of miscellany like that where it looks like elements of this are staged to create a false impression of what's happening. So AFP has done some of that. Um, I haven't looked at it as extensively as I would some of the stuff I've been working on myself, but we have cataloged some of the fraud and misrepresentation. Yes, uh, certainly. Um, what I read, I, I thought was very good. The analysis was very good. Well, let's just reinforce the point and have a look at uh, the Telegraph from today. Uh, so this is a whole page with this key headline, Frontline River is dictating the flow of Russia's offensive. And uh, the article, which is what you actually see on, on screen, how can we describe it? Well, it's just emotion. This is not about factual reporting as to what's happening in the war. It's, it's very emotional text. And ultimately, by the time you get to the end, you're feeling quite sorry for the people who've been brought into the story, but you're feeling pretty short on facts. And if you, uh, if you go further down the page, uh, then of course we get another very pro-Ukrainian image of their troops. Uh, but of course, it's saying here that basically they're they're rushing to defend uh, besiege Severodonetsk. Uh, but if you do your homework and you look at the good analysis, and there is much good analysis on the internet, um, basically they're not rushing anywhere. They are retreating ultimately. And um, we'll just add the third part of that full uh, Telegraph page. If we can pop that one back on screen, uh, we've got this one which is that the US and Germany are pledging the most advanced weapons yet. Now, what they're talking about is the multiple rocket launchers, but what the press does not want to tell the world is, of course, the US has decided they're not going to give the Ukrainians the latest and greatest missiles because their range would mean that the Ukrainians could unleash attacks deep into Russia. And I think that the mood at the moment, both in the US, UK, and indeed the EU, is that the Ukrainians are too unstable at the moment to be given this type of weapon. So they will get the missile system, but they're going to get a very short range rocket to go with it. And ultimately, the prediction from the military analysts is that these launchers will be chewed up by the Russians in no time at all, as they've done with the howitzers. But if you want to uh, see some deeper research onto what's happening in Ukraine, uh, one of our viewers sent in this gentleman. Uh, this is from Austria, the battle for Donbass. Uh, this man is giving some very uh, calm and measured analysis on what's happening on the ground using a very simple system of diagrams on a map. Uh, but it's a very good explanation. And what the UK column would like to say is that we suggest that you seek out some of the links that we've been uh, putting in front of you compare them, but also do your other research and do look at both
what are clearly pro-Russian and pro-Ukrainian uh, reports because this enables you to get some balance in what's actually happening out there. So where do we go from that? Well, I think we've got to say how many people believe that the uh, war in Ukraine has just been unleashed by nation states falling out with each other. I think few people would stick to that opinion at the moment. But many people might be swayed by the fact that under the surface, there's some very big movements taking place in ge geopolitics. And I've just picked up on the, um, our Asia, the Eurasian here, sorry, uh, which, is, which has got this headline, India, Russia and China lead in ditching the US dollar as the global currency. Now, this is obviously a very significant event, which is going to affect uh, world trade. It's going to affect all sorts of things. At the end of the day, Mark, I think we can see that the dollar is running into trouble. Of course, part of the problem is making any currency a global currency, which came out of the Bretton Woods Agreement in the waning days of World War II, when they met in um, the Mount Washington Hotel in New Hampshire. The whole idea of creating a, quote, global currency is flawed from the very beginning. Each nation should operate on a sovereign basis and create a debt-free, interest-free monetary system that serves the people. Uh, these global currency schemes and linking currencies together and making them float and all of that um, is just um, made by crooks for crooks. It, it's, a, it's a system for milking the world and creating a global usury. Um, so uh, these are three of the BRICS nations, of course, India, Russia, and China. And uh, you know the, the US dollar may eventually uh, be replaced as the global currency, but I think that we need to clamor for you know, getting around this whole idea of even having a global currency in my informed opinion on these matters. So yeah, this is, but these are the kind of machinations that go on while we're looking at wars, rumors of wars, um, and all these kind of things. Uh, we have to look for infrastructure changes, uh, especially in monetary systems, while everybody is distracted by, as you said a minute ago, the emotionalism of some of these war reports. And so there's a lot of moving parts here to pay attention to. Uh, yeah, thank you for that, uh, Mark. And of course, what we're really starting to talk about is, is deep geopolitics. Who is it? What organizations are driving what's happening in the world? And one of the things that you've consistently picked up on is the rise of what are being called global cities. And so you've got the Pritzer Forum on global cities here, which I think, if I've got it right, is coming up. I'm just going to highlight because I noticed straight away that this was supported um, not only by the Chicago Council on Global Affairs, but you've also got the Financial Times there. And I found myself thinking, I wonder what the Financial Times has got to do uh, with all of this dialogue on global cities. But tell us a bit more about this particular forum. Uh, it's been going on since 2015, 2016, and I've covered it pretty much every year. They went virtual in 2020, as one might expect. Um, Edward Luce is often involved. He's with the Financial Times and Gillian Tett, T-E-T-T. Those are two of the most common Financial Times uh, moderators, they call themselves, in these annual uh, forums. But now when they began going glo uh, uh, virtual, excuse me, during 2020, they began to break it up into smaller forums rather than having one big 
And so year they're starting in earnest on June 9th. They've had some preliminary stuff already this year in 2022. But on June 9th, and I'm registered to cover it, it's going to be virtual, unfortunately. I wish it wasn't. They're going to bring a new dialogue into this. Oftentimes, it's about resilience against climate change. It's about upgrading cities to mitigate against climate change, you know, self-powering buildings and things like that, uh, closing coal-fired plants like the former Chicago Mayor Rahm Emanuel did recently, um, creating mass transit systems that help meet sustainable development goals for the United Nations, uh, uh, more broad surveillance, and uh, really making cities kind of a um, massive grid, smart cities, they call them, in the internet of things. So um, the interesting twist and turn coming up June 9th for that virtual forum, and that's one week from today, is that they're going to talk about global cities in, in the era of war, quote unquote, and how cities like uh, Kiev and other cities in Ukraine, uh, how they're building their resilience and how they're showing themselves to be a major force in resisting Russian aggression and invasion. So this is a whole new twist for global cities, which mo mostly have dealt with uh, more people living in cities. Uh, they believe that there's major trends going on, that people will leave the hinterland and, and go to stack and pack cities. Cities are the wave of the future. Cities should have a more sovereign national-like powers. They should have uh, um, diplomatic powers. There was even a February 2018 meeting where Evo Dalder, a former U.S. envoy to NATO, who's now president of the Prisker Forum on Global Cities, he went to Chatham House in February 2018, where they asked that very question, should cities have nation-like powers, including diplomatic powers? So okay. it's a broad range of things, but now for the first time, they're bringing actual involvement in war up to the, up to the forefront in the, in the functions and concerns of global cities. Uh, that, well, that's an absolutely fascinating point, and I wasn't aware of that. I think we'll have to discuss that in a in a in a future uh, edition. Uh, but isn't it ironic yes, that yeah. just just as the nation state seems to be crushed on a worldwide basis, we we see less and less, for example, in UK debate in our parliament, but we see policy which is coming from uh, geo uh, world global think tanks driving the policy in Ukraine. Right. We see the nation state being destroyed, but all of a sudden there's this uh, will to make very, very powerful global cities. Um, well, of course, if you're going to create anything on that scale, uh, the money boys have got to be in control. And uh, you've come out with this uh, very interesting article about the IMF and the World Bank. And the headline is IMF World Bank are doubling down on left's climate change madness. Climate change is never far away. What were you picking up when you wrote this article? Uh, the main focus was Nicholas Stern, who's a baron, I understand it. He's, he's from the UK. He's a uh, staffer. He's connected with the London School of Economics, which is pretty notorious in this world management class. And he spoke to the uh, spring meeting of the IMF, which I covered in person one time back in 2011. Boy, that's an experience for another discussion. But the main thing he called about was the literal end of the internal combustion engine as a viable product. He called for ending sales of internal combustion engines altogether. And this was pretty shocking. It's, it's an example of the 
profound, pivotal things that sometimes pop up while we're looking at COVID, while we're looking at Ukraine. And we mentioned the, uh, you know, world currency and whether the U.S. will remain one a minute ago, another pivotal infrastructure kind of thing. But again, these are the kind of things that pop up while we're looking or kind of being led to look at other things. So, um, yeah, calling for the end of the internal combustion engine and really uh, doubling down on climate change and, uh, you know, pretty much laying the groundwork that we've got to keep the climate change narrative going and make some very fundamental changes. And he's he's saying the time for talk is over. We need to do stuff. That's basically what he what he was saying. Yeah. OK, thank you for that. Um, so. It's up to all of us to uh, be researching and digging into what these organizations are doing and planning. And we're going to give people a lot more to look at before the end of the news. Uh, but one organization that you've reported on a lot is the Bilderberg organization. It appeared that they disappeared um, a couple of years ago uh, because they'd held yes. regular meetings and then suddenly we weren't seeing them. And many people thought that maybe they'd folded because their job as a global geopolitical uh, think tank and enabler, it was over. But uh, again, you've got another article here where you're suggesting that maybe they haven't quite disappeared. Yeah, Tony Gosling is quoted in the article. As you know, he's from, I believe, the Bristol area of UK. And he worked with Jim Tucker, <clears throat> at least in a limited sense, Jim Tucker being the original Bilderberg Hound for American Free Press and his predecessor, The Spotlight. He worked with Tucker back in the 90s mainly. Uh, it may go back to the 80s. And uh, so I called him up because we were trying to see if Bilderberg would meet again finally publicly, uh, quasi-publicly. The last time they met in a quasi-public sense was Switzerland 2019. Then the, quote, pandemic comes along. They skipped 20, They skipped 2020. They skipped 2021. It would be unprecedented for them to not meet in that public sense three years in a row and also skip 2022. Keep in mind that the last time they ever skipped a meeting was way back in 1976 during the U.S. Bicentennial when one of the co-founders of Bilderberg, Prince Bernhard of the Netherlands, got uh, enveloped in the Lockheed scandal. So they needed a really big reason to miss any meetings. It, it took something very significant. But now here we're going on three years in a row of them not meeting. So Tony in that article is speculating. Um, I said, have they folded? And I'm just asking the question. He said they never really wanted to be public anyway. They went, quote, public or visible out of some duress, conceding to the uh, spotlight that Tucker helped put on them. And so they they created a website. Oh, it must have been about 15 years ago, give or take a little and nominally went public, but uh, Tony points out they never wanted to do that, and therefore he believes under cover of COVID, they've went back underground, and he heard from a source that I did not happen to confirm yet, that the steering committee, which in total consists of some 35 members, uh, is maybe having sub-meetings on a very secretive basis. So the article's a little speculative, but the fact that Bilderberg, as of right now, still has not announced a meeting for the third year in a row is very significant for an organization that started back in 1954 with seed money from the CIA. So, and, interesting. And a very powerful organization, Mark. And of course, it's one where very often little is said in the press and the media. Certainly that's been the case in UK. The BBC, for example, might, might 
give it a passing mention, but what they never do is, is a full piece investigating what the agenda of the Bilderberg Group really is. So we have to, uh, I think, be suspicious by the fact that they're not transparent. If we stay on the subject of uh, climate, this one was very interesting. You'd uh, taken a little look at weather modification. Now, if there are any uh, viewers or listeners today who still think that that's an extreme thing to try and claim that you can change the weather, uh, well, in fact, they were successfully changing the weather in order to introduce rain back in the early 50s uh, by seeding clouds with various chemicals. Uh, but what you're now uh, discovering is that there are, there's a lot more on the, of the weather modification planned. Tell us about it, Mark. Yeah, th this is a very concrete item. There's no speculation whatsoever. The Texas Department of Licensing and Regulation has applicants who want to cloud seed with silver iodide, and they have to get a license. And this article talks about more than one application that could lead to 31 million acres being affected. That's a pretty decent percentage of a very large state. Texas has just shy of 300,000 square miles in 254 counties. And so the licensing body in Texas is taking applications, including, I think it's called the West Picos Weather Modification Project. And they're, they're actively and uh, tangibly um, creating rain through these projects. And when I went through Fort Stockton, Texas, about a month ago uh, to head to um, Arizona for some news and personal matters, I found one of the licensing application public announcements in a local newspaper in, in the city of Fort Stockton. And I called the Texas Department of Licensing and Regulation, and this is all for real. So, you know, there are some theories that, that venture into high speculation about some, uh, I'll stress the word, some of the um, chemtrails, as they're called. But the, I, the, the idea of silver iodide for creating rain actually goes back as far as the 1930s, and some say even before that. But um, at any rate, this is something very tangible. And when I, the last point I'll make about it is when I called about it, I said, well, we have raging wildfires in New Mexico, but especially in Arizona at that time. Is there going to be any effort to cloud seed for the purpose of fire suppression? And I got some very mixed, very tentative answers. And right now, as we speak, uh, I guess northern New Mexico has some particularly serious fires. And yet, strangely, at least not yet, there's no talk of using cloud seeding in, in a constructive way to uh, lessen the conditions that create these fires, but also to suppress fires early on before they rage out of control. So it's curious that there's that disconnect in this uh, very real and ongoing program, which is not just Texas either. So uh, there's a lot to uh, follow up on with the uh, wildfires in connection with this. Yeah, indeed. But of course, we're seeing everything to do with climate change uh, affecting um, nation states, deliberate use that phrase worldwide. So this again, appears to be globalist policy that's unfolding here. Um, well, we just dropped this one in to emphasize the point about who is making the rules on, on events and actions which affect all of us. So this is Breitbart, going back to the 26th of November 2020, but the headline, Boris government assures the UN of its commitment to the global compact on migration. 
And as uh, we reflect on that headline, I'll just remind our viewers and listeners that it was the UN uh, Commissioner on Migration, Peter Sutherland, who was on record as, as saying that we, we need more mass migration to help break down the homogeneity of the nation state. And I think this starts to uh, put some questions in our head about what the real agenda of the UN and the globalists who are pushing migration, is it in order to give everybody access to uh, the better life of the Western world or to give people better jobs? Or is the mass migration to do with something a lot darker, which is to help destabilize the nation state, possibly in preparation for the rise of the global cities that Marx talked about? But uh, let's move on to health here. And um, thanks to Mike for this one, which he saw earlier on today, but Politico reporting that countries had reached a, de <coughs> excuse me, reached a deal on changes to global health rules. The World Health Assembly adopts US-led resolution on a timeline for amendments to the international health regulations. Before we discuss this a little bit, let's just bring in a couple of bullet points, well, three to be precise. The World Health Assembly, the annual meeting of WHO member countries, adopted a US-led resolution that says the timeline for amendments to the international health regulations to come into force. The resolution was nearly scuppered after several countries, including the Afri Africa Group, indicated that they had reservations about it. The um, IHR uh, dictate how countries should report on potential new public health threats and sets out the World Health Organization's role. However, assessments of the response to the pandemic have indicated that the regulations fell short and need to be strengthened. And I can see you smiling there, Debbie. Let's do the last one. Under the compromise officially agreed on by countries on Friday evening, countries will have 10 months to reject an amendment to the health regulations instead of nine months, as appeared in an earlier draft text. What has remained in the text is that any amendment to the regulations will come into effect in 12 months. That shaves a year off the current timeline. So what would your reaction be to this headline? It seems to me that this is, uh, this is still heading down the, the route of more control, more power for yeah. the World Health Organization. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think this is what's worrying is that, that those words nearly scuppered the, the you know, the African uh, group nearly scuppered, but they didn't scupper it. And this is what we've thought all along in that the World Health Organization will probably go off in a little back corridor somewhere or in a back room somewhere and they will concoct something for the future, and, and and you know, as we can see, then they've they've only reduced it. Uh, they've only reduced it by an, a month. So we don't have much time to object to anything. That's if we get to hear about the amendments when they've been voted through in the first place. So really, it's all a bit hit and miss, and something definitely to keep an eye on. I don't trust the World Health Assembly um, or the World Health just Organization. Debbie, at all. For, for audience who may be perhaps new, just give them the heart of the subject, that this is this is about the World Health Assembly yeah. taking powers on itself to control what happens in each and every country worldwide. Yeah, basically, um, you're absolutely right. This is where the World Health Organization would get so much power, they would actually take each, each member state's sovereign power. And if they felt that they wanted to 
um, call a pandemic or a, a health emergency, they would be able to, and every single uh, country, member state, 194 countries, would have to act in lockstep. So this is giving the WHO and Bill Gates, of course, and his germ team, huge powers, um, unelected people. We don't, we haven't been told anything about this. So we need to keep a really close eye because if the WHO do go for a power grab, we've only got a very limited amount of time with which to object. So all eyes on uh, the World Health Organization. And uh, Mark, I know you're tight for time today and we'll be leaving us very shortly, but uh, do you want to respond to that? I know there's concern, been widespread concern about this so-called power grab in America. Yeah, I recently wrote about this. I think an interesting caveat or twist in this is either it's they're seeking WHO empowerment, more empowerment, and there seems to be plenty of references by the president in his White House mm -hmm. statements and by World Health Assembly statements themselves, that they want to strengthen the WHO. The word strengthen is repeated again and again and again. But another twist or another way of looking at it might be that, like NATO, the US basically runs the WHO by donating most of the funds. Uh, Biden has bragged about the president is the largest, or excuse me, the United States is the largest donor toward, quote, fighting COVID of all the nations. Um, who's running whom, right? The United States probably, and there are some indications of this, kind of runs the show. And either way, you're going to have a growing centralized power, whether it's the U.S. assuming more dominance over the WHO or whether it's the WHO assuming more power over its member states. Either way, you get a strengthening of centralized power over COVID policy somewhat more incrementally perhaps than we might expect but nevertheless uh, all the signposts point toward that yeah. okay excellent and uh, finally mark i i forgot to mention it a little bit earlier but you're in arkansas there i believe that you're in hope and um <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the key bit about hope is if i've got this right it was bill clinton's hometown so is it hope or hopeless uh, sometimes it feels hopeless. Uh, I sometimes try to imitate him. I do pretty well, I'm told. But he, um, there's signs all over. Birthplace of William Jefferson Clinton. They, they forgot to put the word unrepentant globalist on the sign. So there's a little typo on their road signs. <laughs> uh, okay. All right. Well, thank you very much for joining us. Have, have a good day. And of course, I think you're going to start with a cup of coffee and your breakfast. Is it still early for you? Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's already here. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. well, 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 very good. Um, great seeing y'all. And uh, thanks for the uh, the invite. And uh, yeah, there's some important stuff. These updates are very crucial. So keep up the good work. We'll see you soon. Thank you very much. OK, uh, well, for our, thank you, Mark. For our audience, uh, we just like to uh, say thank you for all the support that you've given us. Um, join us is the key thing. Do become a subscriber to UK Column because uh, without your help, we can't do what we're doing. More importantly, with your help, we are looking to expand still further. And some of the changes that you've been seeing over the last couple of weeks indicate what we are now being able to do as a result of all your support. That includes Debbie Evans being alongside me in the studio today. And uh, if you haven't visited the shop, please do. Uh, hoodies are still there, but I understand that there's some very, very interesting 
bags, which are now becoming very popular. And uh, you'll need to be quick if you fancy owning one of those. And of course, make sure that you share our material everywhere you can, because why do we do what we do? Well, we want to inform people. We want to warn people about some of the bad things that are happening. And ultimately, we're working very hard to bring people together. Now, interaction with the audience is important. And I just want to say it's wonderful when we get emails back in responding to what we've uh, covered. Uh, so a lady called Jackie sent us this one. It said, uh, dear team, any dissatisfaction of ambulance service? Can viewers also complain to the Parliamentary and Health Service Ombudsman City Gate? Uh, and there's the address. You can freeze this on screen to see it. And she then tells a pretty unfortunate story about um, South Central Ambulance NHS Foundation Trust when she'd come across an injured motorcyclist who had hit a deer in the new forest. And basically it then became a saga as to what she was going to do in order to get an ambulance there. So Debbie, this is a, this is a classic reporting from members of the public. Encourage our audience, as I say, to freeze it on the screen and have a look but we can't get ambulances. We, we can't get ambulances. And, and if you look at uh, yesterday's news, you'll see why we can't get ambulances. Um, and at the, at the end of the day, we're not meant to be. Ambulances are not going to be here for the future, folks. You know, we, we won't need to be taken to hospital. Hospital at home and virtual wards are what we've got to look forward to. So we're not gonna need to go to hospital. And if you do need to go to hospital, then you'll be going to hospital in a nice super duper electric ambulance, although I'm not quite sure how they're going to charge them though, Brian, because if somebody needs to be transported quite a way away um, and it's running out of charge, I'm not sure what happens well, if you've got a patient in the back and you need to charge an electric ambulance up, but ambulances are going, sadly. Yes, and we got another email in on the, the uh, subject of ambulance stations. This is from Simon. He said, hi, all great work again. In Debbie's last segment about ambulance station sell-offs, the list of property included 66 Kingston Road in Leatherhead, Surrey, and was simply described as Leatherhead. Number 66 is a fish and chip shop, not publicly owned property. However, 86 is the Leatherhead ambulance station. Uh, he then says a simple typo, question mark. I think there be, sorry, I think there may be more ambulance stations for sale than you realise, but this makes the point, and it also uh, underlines uh, Mark, sorry, beg your pardon, Mike, Mike Robinson's work, where he was looking at treasury sell-off of uh, public property in UK. And uh, of course, they admitted quite freely that they didn't have a complete database of the public property that was being sold. So the word corruption comes into my mind, but maybe that's a little bit unfair. Maybe not. No, I, I think too as well, um, and I, we will cover it um, in, in a, a future news, but there's also um, mental health vehicles according to the NHS long-term plan. And I did get a couple of emails from people today asking me what, what I was referring to yesterday on the news. So we will cover it, but it's, it's a company um, called Secure, I can't remember where I've written it now, um, but they're Secure UK Mental Health um, vehicles for people with mental health issues. And these are predominantly 20% are patients that have been sectioned. So anybody with a mental health illness will see a mental health vehicle um, 
maybe pulling up to their door. So if anybody wants to check it out, just look at those. But we will cover it in a, a future news, I promise. Okay, excellent. Well, the good news is that uh, the Cabinet Office has been busy tweeting. And what have they been tweeting? Well, Queen's Jubilee birthday honours list. And uh, Debbie is sighing beside me because uh, she's been having a look at what the Telegraph's reported on this. Uh, but this was the tweet. The list has been released, exclamation mark. Congratulations to all honours recipients who have been awarded for their outstanding contributions. And there's a nice little animated uh, graphic that comes with it. Uh, this is the meat of it. If you go to gov.uk, the honours list marks HM the Queen's Jubilee year, um, celebration of Her Majesty's 70 years of service. So it all, all gets more and more exciting. I was fascinated by this bit, which is at the end of the government text, uh, they set out all the statistics on the awards to prove that they have exactly the right balance of white people, black people, gay people, men, women. And I wondered which came first. Did they work off the fact that they went through the individual uh, ratio of uh, who's who and said, yes, we're going to need so many white people, we're going to need so many black people, or did they get it right by chance? Because if I cast my eye over these statistics, they look pretty accurate for what mm. is accepted as the uh, as the ratio between these groups in UK. Maybe I'm getting a bit cynical on that, but I didn't have to look too far. Well, actually, you showed me the picture. We're going to say to our viewers, brace yourself as we bring one of the happy recipients up on screen. And here is the young man looking very relaxed and fetching. And if you don't recognize it, it's Ewan and Blair. And he, he, he gains an honor 30 years earlier than his father is the Telegraph's. Uh, this is a massive picture. It's, it's nearly a whole page article in the Telegraph. But let's put it into context because, of course, here's daddy. Uh, looking up at the stars, equipping leaders and making change. And this is uh, part of another one of uh, Tony Blair's globalist organizations. I think uh, we can put some, uh, we can put a <laughs> caption in. Thanks, Dad. I did it all on my own. Uh, do you think that's likely, Debbie? Uh, no. No. <laughs> no. Okay. Well, let's bring in this man because if we're having a laugh at you, and I'm sure he's done a great job, and Daddy's very pr proud. Uh, let's bring in the boss of AstraZeneca because he's truly humble to be uh, to be honoured in the Queen's birthday honours. Uh, so this is what he said. This is his name is Pascal Sorio. He says, "I'm truly humbled by this recognition. Growing up in France, I had many dreams and hopes for the future, but I never thought I would receive a knighthood from Her Majesty the Queen." I certainly didn't, I must say. Well, I didn't either. And I'm surprised he knows that he's got a knighthood because every time I email Pasquale Sorio and every time anybody emails him, he doesn't he doesn't reply. So it was very fortunate that he happened to pick up the that letter. He's got an award. Yeah, absolutely. Really fortunate. And if you're listening, Pascal, there'll be another email binging in soon. So if you'd like to reply to me, I'd be super grateful. Thank you. OK, well, let's uh, carry on with what he had to say. He said, as an Australian citizen, it's a great privilege to receive this award and an honour to work with so many outstanding people around the world dedicated to following the science in order to bring medicines to patients. This recognition is also theirs. He's talking about his company, and I'd like to thank each of them for their commitment to our mission 
I'm also grateful to my family for their support, enabling me to pursue a career doing what I love. So this is just indicative of uh, high level people, many of them across pharmaceutical industry, but also the NHS who've received awards. And I know that you, you've got a few names highlighted oh. there in the paper. So, Well, it I, was my fault. I brought the Telegraph today. And, and I would like to say very quickly, you know, maybe some of the people that have got serious adverse reactions, especially after having the AstraZeneca jab, might like to speak to Pascal Sorio on a, on a far more serious note, you know. Um, but I did, I'll try to be very quiet. Um, but I bought the Telegraph today. And honestly, I've highlighted a few that make me particularly ill. But there's, it goes on and on and on, page after page after page of people that have been honoured, most of them NHS. Um, I'm pretty horrified to see, actually, that the chief nurse, Ruth May, <laughs> I don't hold her in terribly high regard, she's also been honoured. But it seems to be a lot of the COVID industry lovies, NHS, London School of Hygiene, etc. But if anybody just wants to have a look, there's quite a few. So that's two, two full pages. There. Two full, yeah. And, and, you know, this is a big paper, the Telegraph. So if I turn it around, we're, you can see it's line after line. I'll just add that we're certainly not encouraging anybody no. to buy the Telegraph. But if you do need to uh, get hold of a copy, you can see all those names. Now, of course, if the pharmaceutical, pharmaceutical industry is being rewarded in the honours list, there have been many professionals speaking out about their concerns about the pharmaceutical products, the vaccines, but also the whole policy around COVID-19. And uh, many of you will be aware of Doctors for COVID Ethics. UK Column has put out a, a couple of symposia that they've conducted where medical professionals, also legal professionals, have been voicing their concerns over all those matters. Well, we're delighted to say that uh, the UK Column's work with some French experts has borne fruit and uh, the uh, article is now up on the UK Column website. This is just a picture of uh, Alex Thompson, who was doing a lot of work for us in the background uh, with the French language. So thank you very much, Alex. But of course, I want to say a very big thank you to everyone who donates to the UK column and our loyal subscribers, because we could not do this sort of thing without your financial help, uh, because it involved uh, a lot of travel. It involved bringing people together in a special way. And ultimately, we could only do it with the support of our UK column supporters and the internal work of uh, Mike, Alex and the rest of the UK mm -hmm. column team. So let's just have a little look at uh, a brief clip. This is Alex introducing uh, fr effectively a French version of Doctors for COVID Ethics. We had a, um, a legal expert in with the mix, but we did this because we were being told by French professionals that they felt they had no way of getting their own message out. And we also felt that the best way to get their message out was to allow them to do it in their natural language, which was French. So let's just hear Alex introducing this uh, unique UK column production. Bienvenue à tous nos téléspectateurs. Je m'appelle Alex Thompson. 
et au nom de l'organisation médiatique UK Column, basée à Plymouth, au Royaume-Uni, j'ai le privilège d'accueillir ce symposium unique de médecins et autres professionnels de la santé français et belge qui s'intéressent aux événements et à la politique entourant la crise du COVID-19 et les programmes de vaccination nationaux et internationaux qui l'a suivi. So there we are. Now, of course, if we put up the, uh, the actual article that you can go and see and the link through to the videos, this is what you see on the UK Column website. Uh, but I'm going to say straight away that we did this at this present time for a French audience. So the videos are in French. Many people are already saying to us, where's the subtitling? And we're saying, hang on a minute, uh, we are working on that. But also some months ago, I did ask for help from bilingual people and uh, we had a tremendous response. Uh, we will be contacting them soon in order to actually say what they can do. But the emails came in again this morning. So we have this one here from a lady called Jane. I live in France and can translate French into English. So if you still need help with translating the presentations of the French doctors, I'd be very willing. Uh, and uh, we're going to say a big thank you. And there's going to be an email to all the people who did contact us saying they were bilingual. I beg your pardon, I've jumped on one extra one there. Uh, so, uh, yes, we're going to say a big thank you to our, our supporters because this really was quite a difficult event yeah. to put together. We achieved it, but we could only do it with your help and support. So a big thank you to you out there. Okay, well, we're going to move on to um, a subject which at first look might not appear to be health related, but it is. <laughs> it is. Um, you've entitled it, Debbie, um, the elephant in the room. Uh, you've got the big Southwest Water name up there. So this is the provider of all matters to do with water and sewage in the Southwest. Uh, we've got a little headline in there, sea too dirty to swim in after heavy rain, admits water chief whose company pumped sewage there 42 times last year. And uh, I can't quite read the one on the right, but tell us what's been going on. Well, I'm a, I'm a sewer flood victim. Uh, I've had 102 sewer floods. And on Sunday night, we had another one. And I just wanted really to bring attention to water companies who are private companies performing a public duty. And for anybody that thinks when they come to Cornwall uh, or to Devon or to any seaside resort, when they go paddling in the sea, they're more than likely paddling in sewage. And this is because of the lack of infrastructure, lack of investments. Uh, the water companies basically don't know where their assets are. And so this article, uh, the article that was written then was in 2012, but the situation's got worse and worse and worse. And we're looking at global companies, um, a global uh, water regulator doesn't exist. Uh, UK water regulator doesn't exist. Off what are purely a financial regulator. We don't even have a water minister in the United Kingdom. So sewage um, and sewer floods are a real elephant in the room. And it, it might be interesting for people to know that the only enforcement agency, if sewage gets pumped into the sea or the rivers, then the environment agency have the powers to regulate the water companies. However, 
And I know that there are an awful lot of people like me, I mean thousands, that experience regular sewer floods. There is no law to protect us. So the water companies effectively aren't breaking the law because there is no law pouring sewage onto land. Um, Anne Widdicombe called it a lacuna in the law. So keep an eye on the water companies. Um, and, and my comment on this, Debbie, is, and this is from a country which stands on the world stage to tell yeah. other countries how to run their own businesses. So uh, Boris Johnson at the moment prosecuting a war in Ukraine, pumping in money for weapons, but at home, uh, this sort of event is happening on a regular basis. Uh, where are the local MPs? Where are the local councillors? Not to be seen in no. any numbers. Uh, this is the real state of UK. Let's have a look at uh, these photographs which uh, indicate it. Now, you said to me, Debbie, that it started to rain heavily and in no time at all. Uh, roads flooded and this water includes sewage and homes flooded as a result. Tell us about these photos. Yeah, uh, three minutes of rain is what it took uh, for me to have to park my car in the middle of the road, knee high in water, to be able to stop the traffic because the traffic, when it drives through flood water, creates bow waves and the bow waves flood our homes even more. So the water that you're seeing there, um, the rain had just stopped. It was a little bit deeper just before. But all of this happened in half an hour. And for us to flood in our area, it takes three minutes. That's all it takes. And of course, nobody believes us unless we take the footage, which you can see quite clearly there. Right. So let's just see if we can get this little bit of video to run, because this sort of shows the uh, power of what's going on. If this was just rainwater and it was a flood of, OK, it would be rainwater, but dirty. That would be one thing. But this isn't because... Um, this is always contaminated with sewage. Well, all, all flood water is dirty. We, we, people think that a flood is clean water. It isn't. Whether it's come from a foul sewer, a combined sewer, a surface water sewer, it's all dirty water and so contaminated. And of course, are we going to talk about the health, the health risk there on, um, I don't understand I don't understand it in that we have to, well, we had to stand six foot apart from one another and wear masks. And COVID is really, really dangerous. COVID is very, very um, toxic. And yet we know that we're tracking COVID in wastewater, or at least the water companies are, but they're leaving it around my house and there's no biohazard teams. There's masks in my garden. There's masks in my back room because we had water come into the house. Um, there's infected water, whether it's E. coli, COVID or anything else. And um, the, the management from Southwest Water, thank you so much, Southwest Water. They're all enjoying their Jubilee uh, pudding and their Jubilee weekend. Um, they're too busy to worry about what might be floating around my house because they're having their Jubilee. So it's a kind of COVID issue, really, in that how dangerous is COVID? And that's my question to Southwest Water. And we just emphasise here, obviously, you're feeling passionate about this, Debbie, yeah. because it's happened to your house. But A lot of people. Absolutely. The key point is that yeah. what's happening to Debbie and her neighbours is happening to people all across the country. Uh, Cornwall has a particular problem. But here we are in 2022 celebrating Jubilee. We can't deal with something as basic as draining water away 
and keeping the streets clean of sewage. But this is where it gets interesting. And I was fascinated by this because uh, you're picking up on the fact that apparently we're working with the European <laughs> Union to make sure these sorts of floods don't don't happen. Well, apparently we are. And this sign actually is right outside my front door. And uh, the work was carried out last year. And if I remember rightly, we'd left Europe, hadn't we? We'd Brexited. And yet we've got the European Regional Development Fund. So this scheme that was meant to protect my house um, was £32 million worth of investment. And as you can see, it clearly failed. But my point is, is that I am just representative of thousands of people in the United Kingdom who are getting regularly flooded, not just by river water or stream water, but by foul sewers. So and it's something that we really need to, to, to talk about because, like I say, there are thousands of people, Just I'm just one of them, thousands of people like me. Right. And you, you now we often say to people, go and see your local MP, because mm. clearly whatever the performance of the MP, they shouldn't be allowed to get away scot-free when something like this of this magnitude happens. But you went to see a gentleman called Steve Double, uh, MP. Mm. We can just bring this slide up on screen. Um, did Mr. Double give you any help? No. <laughs> Mr. Double gave me no help at all. In fact, Mr. Double gave me more grief than help. He caused more problems than helped. And as you can see, um, he's I mean, got a bit of a checkered. He's got a little bit of a history. I mean, he was only just elected there, and uh, he was part of the Sexminster papers when he had an affair with um, his assistant. Um, and he's not been. And, and now. It's interesting to see that he's a, he's a pastor and actually he was married in the chapel right next door to my house. So he knows the area very well. And now he's a whip. Um, I won't make too many more comments about the fact that he's a whip and that he's been involved in an affair. But it always seemed a little bit too ironic. A bit murky. A little bit. Does this take us to a better place? Because at one point there was a motion in, in uh, an early day motion put forward about flooding at Brooks Corner, Par Cornwall. Um, where did this get to? Well, this was our previous MP, Stephen Gilbert, who was on, on the flip side. He was marvellous. Um, but what people don't seem to understand is the power that these water companies have. And they actually signed us to a gagging order. Uh, obviously, you can see I'm not gagged and I'm talking quite freely. Um, but they signed us to a non-disclosure agreement on our solicitor's advice. Um, but then uh, they decided to threaten our solicitor and threaten us personally. So Southwest Waters Board and Southwest Waters CEO decided to threaten us. And luckily for, for, for us, the MP was so horrified that a team of lawyers had been threatened by Pennon, who are Southwest Waters' parent company, that he put in an early day motion. Um, into the House of Commons. And that's where it still remains, just as proof of the power and the tyranny that these water companies, and, and all of them pretty much corrupt, um, but just to show you that uh, it's not being made up, that this is real. And it's happening to people all over the country. Okay. And we're, we're just going to put up some details of the board. Now, we're going to make it clear, we're not saying straight off that these people have done anything no. wrong. We're just showing the public who is in charge of the organisation. So this is Jill Ryder, the chair. 
And um, apparently she's got some interesting experience, a wealth of experience in leadership and governance across a range of sectors, including professional services, education, not-for-profit and government. So it's amazing if you have that level of expertise, but getting down to the job of what Southwest Water is supposed to do, which is look after clean water, potable water and sewage. Um, she, she seems to be struggling there a bit, perhaps, but people can go to the uh, site and have a look and get a bit more in the background of the key people. Um, you sent a pretty um, robust email off here. Tell us about this one. Well, I was I was. I was pretty upset because you do get upset when your house has been flooded, especially when it's been flooded with sewage. And my son hasn't been very well. So trying to get anything out of the house is quite difficult. So I wrote them an email to inform them that yet again, we had flooded and what were they going to do about it? And um, you can freeze the screen and see it and then you can see their reply. Well, we just put this part two. So there's uh, two, two, yeah. two slides for the outgoing email from Debbie. But this is the key one. Uh, we've got an image of the, the water in action there. This is the response from Steve Hayfield, Head of Customer Operations. Thank you for your email. I'm sorry to hear of the disturbance you've experienced <laughs> last night. So a flood has now become a disturbance. This is a bit like a, um, the, the joke about uh, surrender and evacuation in Ukraine. Um, a, a flood has now become a disturbance. I've checked in with our operators who attended and they've advised there was no evidence of any sewer flooding or any sewage related debris. They've also stated they did not meet with or see any residents on site. Well, presumably the residents have been oh, swept away. No, 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 they did. They saw me. They arrived at uh, the flood was at seven o'clock in the evening and I was informed that Southwest Water were arriving at midnight. So um, I stayed up and I heard the, the van turn up at five minutes past midnight and I ran out into the middle of the road with bare feet and Southwest Water accelerated and drove off, uh, drove straight past me. So they, they obviously didn't see me, but I saw them. Yeah. And uh, we're, we're just about coming to the end of this segment, but it is fascinating to see this amount of detail about what's been going on here. You've of course, been fighting the battle for many years. But this one here by Corporate Watch, Southwest Water Pollution, Floods and Profits. Southwest Water charges the people of Devon and Cornwall some of the highest bills in the country. The company says this is necessary to improve the service. But an investigation by Corporate Watch has found it's paying out more to owners and financiers than it is investing in the water and sewage supplies. So privatised company, Where's the money going? The money's going back to the shareholders and the bigwigs running it. And clearly, as you're demonstrating, uh, they're not doing the basic job. But this was the second point that you were intimating here. This is about wastewater and the COVID-9 monitoring. And this is, this is very interesting that in this particular article, government article, uh, it's saying that people infected with coronavirus shed the virus during daily activities, such as going to the toilet and blowing their nose, the virus enters the sewer, sorry, the sewer system through sinks, drains and toilets. Fragments of the virus that causes COVID-19 can be detected in samples of wastewater. And this is why you're saying mm. that on one hand, the UK government has been warning of the dangers, but when there's the reality of sewage in, in uh, water 
infested with raw sewage, all of a sudden it doesn't seem to be a problem. No, that's crazy. That's it. it. It is really crazy. You know, where are the biohazard teams? Well, where are the fumigators? The road hasn't even been cleaned. We've still got debris all over the road. We've got some sewage over the road and nobody's come to clean it. And yet the government are telling us to stay at home. Well, if I stay at home and thousands of other people that are flood victims stay at home as well, then they're staying at home with COVID, which is meant to be dangerous, isn't it? Supposedly. Isn't it? Um, when was uh, G7 there? That was summertime. Or that G... was summertime, yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. Probably why. Yeah. Okay, well, let's get back on the subject of what's happening uh, globally. And you'd picked up on this um, agenda, future agenda, the world in 2025, insights from multiple expert discussions. Now, this is back in 2016, but this sort of stuff is fascinating because who are these people to sit in big rooms discussing what our lives are going to be like? So that was the glowing image. Uh, but you'd also picked up on the fact that a lot of people are involved. So we've got everybody from a partner of Ipsos Strategy, uh, chair of Community Ventures. Uh, what's the other gentleman there? The Futures uh, Company. And um, this is uh, part of the uh, documents that they're putting out. Still being stupid, despite a better understanding of the long-term challenges we face, we individually and collectively continue to make decisions that may make sense in the short term, but do not lead to better long-term consequences. So the average person can't really think, can't do anything. We've got to rely on these people to choose our agenda. And what are they talking about here, the UK in 2030? And uh, I've lost track of my slides here. Is this next one? Oh, yes, this is part of the, this is part of the detail that they're talking about. So there a number of different trends. Uh, we've jumped in at trend three, improving digital connectivity. Um, trend four, declining um, economic influence. They're, they're considering that. Trend seven, F emphasis on the local. Trend eight, UK leadership. And uh, this one here, as a little insert, is uh, uh, material identity. So fascinating stuff. Who are these people, Debbie? Well, this is a massive think tank. And um, what I suggest everybody does is when you go onto the Future um, Agenda website, if you go onto the Partners link, and you honestly, you'll scroll down and down and down. Everybody who's anybody is linked to this think tank. Uh, Pfizer, for example, YouGov, uh, New Zealand government, Facebook, Cisco, uh, Nokia, Amgen, Accenture. I mean, honestly, this think tank is supported by pretty much everybody and they have a vision for the future in most countries, and we've just highlighted the UK there, but a vision for digital connectivity and autonomous vehicles and how life is going to be in 2025 and 2030. So for anybody that hasn't discovered Future Agenda, have a look at their website and um, see what you think and, and, and see what's coming up in the future. And here's some, uh, some images to really uh bring it home. So we've got everything connected. Over one trillion sensors are connected to multiple networks. Everything that can benefit from a connection has one. 
We deliver 10,000 times more data, 100 times more effectively, but are concerned about the security of the information that flows. And then they're talking about everything, data rev revolution, our habitat, beliefs and belonging, power and influence, changing business. Uh, none of this is discussed with the public. It's discussed in these think tanks and then the result is delivered. But uh, you can see where it's going, data ownership, autonomous vehicles, which I think we just mentioned there, shifting power and influence. But who holds the power and who makes the different, who, who makes the decisions? And of course, top left, this is one that we've been reporting on increasingly the agenda to change the human being yeah. uh, in their God-given form. So here's enhanced performance. We are developing key technologies that could integrate humans and data to make us safer, more informed and potentially superhuman in performance. I want to say what idiot wrote those words, because to me, it, it shows a massive ego, but very little understanding of the risks. And uh, we've got the changing nature of uh, privacy and bottom truth and illusion. And uh, we'll just bring in this one, which I think is the last one, accelerating displacement, agelessness and the human touch. Although everything they're talking about seems to be removing the human yeah, touch. Yeah, absolutely. And, and there's loads more. I've just taken a selection uh, to give people an idea of what they might see on the Future Agenda website. But there's honestly, there's an awful lot more. So that's just a little taster um, to tickle your taste buds. But go and have a look at it because um, there's a lot more on that website. OK. And uh, the United Nations, of course, is key if we stay on the theme of, of who is pulling the power globally. Um, but this one really says it, it <laughs> says it as it is. Yeah. United Nations, universal vaccination whilst we weren't looking and uh, galvanized momentum for sorry, galvanizing momentum for universal vaccination. In February 2022, in the General Assembly Hall, United Nations headquarters, the high-level thematic debate, which will take place in a hybrid format, will comprise of an opening statement, uh, multi-stakeholder panels, and a high-level plenary, and will take place in a hybrid format. Lots of English language there, which I don't really understand. What are they saying, Debbie? Word soup, but basically we're going to vaccinate the world. And this is an ongoing agenda, so people keep thinking that COVID's over, but we're still vaccinating and the vaccinations are going to go on. Um, and clearly you can see that the United Nations, that's their number one agenda, universal vaccination. OK, and to reinforce this, now it is going back to December 2021, but what we're showing is really where the power base is for decisions that are then being rolled out to mm. uh, governments in the nation states. So this is president of the General Assembly. And uh, it's saying, Excellency, pursuant to my letter, date 15th November 2021, I have the honour to inform you that I will convene a one-day high-level thematic debate entitled Galvanising Momentum for Universal Vaccination on Thursday the 13th of January 2022 in the General Assembly Hall, United Nations headquarters. So we can't get out the views and the warnings of experts, medical experts, uh, legal experts around the world, for the damage that has been done by vaccinations in the COVID-19 pandemic. 
but behind the scenes, they're already yeah. gearing up to say, well, if you live on the world, you live in the world, you're on the globe, we're going to vaccinate you. Yeah, and and that's and that's it. And I don't think people realise that this is this is actually going on behind the scenes when they think that we're not looking, you know. But we are looking and we are seeing it, and we need to be talking about it because this is the agenda: universal vaccination. Vaccinations have not gone; they're coming more and more and more. And uh, we've got a bit more of the provisional program here, which we can bring up on screen. Um, so it says the round table will highlight and review existing challenges in vaccine production and distribution, optimizing quality, improving absorption capacity and delivery rates in low coverage countries and ensuing supply predictability. The discussion will feed into the second round table and we go on to innovations and solutions. So the, the, these are all key policy vehicles, Debbie that are then producing a policy which lands on the desk of Boris Johnson's government and the civil servants pick it up and start to run with it. No debate in Westminster about no. what this is and do we want it. It's simply drifted into being put in place. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know what, you know, let's not forget we've talked about the 100 day mission and so has Mike many times and so have you, Brian, many times before. So these vaccinations, universal vaccinations, whenever they're coming in or whatever they're going to have in them are probably going to be rolled out within 100 days. So who knows what safety, they won't have gone through safety trials or anything. So this is a, a rapid acceleration of universal vaccination that we really need to keep our eyes on. Okay, and uh, we're gonna put up this uh, slide and say, once again, well done, conservative woman. Uh, really excellent article. Uh, it says we're becoming more aware of gagging orders affecting reporting of adverse effects uh, following the COVID vaccination. Now, this is writer in New Zealand yeah. as opposed to UK. So we know this is a, a worldwide problem. Apparently, hospital administrators are keen to avoid any publicity that might suggest increased incidence of cardiac arrests and other vaccine side effects. So when there are concerns over the safety of vaccines, what do we have? We have a complete close down. Free speech goes out the window. So well done, conservative woman. Yeah. Change the subject to this gentleman. Um, he, I thought we got rid of him in a nice sort of way, yeah. an appropriate way. Um, but David Middle, Miliband is popping up on the world scene again. Um, a panel probing whose coronavirus pandemic response. Yes, he's uh, David. David Miliband is very concerned about the fact that we're still not prepared for the next pandemic, that we still didn't do very well in this pandemic. And basically we need to, and as we go back to the previous story, vaccinate the world. So David Miliband is very pro getting the world ready for the next pandemic. Isn't it weird though, Brian, because we have one pandemic and then all of a sudden lots more come up. It's a bit like buses. You wait decades for one and then they all come at once. But David Miliband is very clear on the fact that he doesn't think that we're prepared for the next pandemic and therefore he's going to get involved and clearly you see he's getting involved here with the WHO. Okay thank you for that. I'll just say that we should have uh, labelled the slide there. We're not promoting necessarily the insure advert. No. That just happens to be part of the image with uh, David Miliband. No doubt he's going to be very upset. We've put an extra L in his name top left. Um, if you go to his, um, this is Twitter page, 
Um, he's saying every humanitarian crisis is in fact a political crisis. I would have thought it was the other way around, isn't it? It's the politics creating the crises. Uh, in fact, the international system meant to prevent and address humanity, humanitarian crises is failing to combat di displacement and suffering. So there we can see that he's getting involved with the UN Security Council briefing, protection of civilians and open debate. Uh, I don't know what our audience thinks about David Miliband. I'm not sure I want him trying to protect me. He's got a bit of a checkered history. Um, uh, this um, report that you got, including a roughly piece of video, was where apparently a pretty unpleasant exchange took place between Mr. Miliband and uh, Sergei Lavrov, who said, uh, who the F are you? This shows the arrogance of the young man, I think. Yeah. And um, then we've got some interesting stuff coming in here because we've got David Miliband on the left, um, also tied in with Dr. Uh, Tedros. Yep. Uh, from the World Health Organization. Um, we've also got Tony Blair, Blair to hold, uh, sorry, to host Future of Britain conference as he plots new political movement uh, inspired by Macron. Um, he's going to, in, uh, he's, he's probably going to include, Dave, that the reason I brought that in is because David Miliband is going to be joining Blair along with Rory Stewart, in case we'd forgotten where Rory Stewart's gone. Rory Stewart, David Gork, uh, David Miliband, uh, with Emily Maitlis as well. Uh, there's going to be a great big, huge conference on June the 30th where Tony Blair is going to talk about his vision. It's very self-indulgent, I believe, of Tony Blair, but his vision for the future of Britain and where he thinks we should be going. So... We've got a little video yes. clip, if we can uh, see whether we can play that for you. It is only a tiny clip to give you a flavour, but what we say is please go and have a look at the original. You will find it easily enough. Um, but Tony Blair waxing lyrical on the whole future. What is to happen? Don't worry, you just sit at home and relax. Tony Blair is sorting out the future of the world to his entire satisfaction. Let's have a look at him performing. Please join me in welcoming Tony Blair to the stage. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Aaron. Welcome, everyone. It's a great pleasure to, to see people here. As a result of, obviously, still the COVID restrictions, um, it's a smaller group of people than we otherwise would have assembled, but thank you so much for coming. I'm, I'm really honored that you have, and um, Ara is one of the people I respect uh, most in public life. He, he's a, a thinker who's also a practitioner, and a practitioner who's also a leader. It's a pretty rare combination, so I'm absolutely thrilled uh, to have your introduction, and thank you, Ara, for, for the kind welcome, and thank you also to the Institute of Global Health Innovation for hosting today's event. I can't think of any better place to speak with you about the future of Britain and an institution like Imperial College, which is a, a, a tremendous global leader in science, engineering, medicine, and business. The achievements of Imperial researchers are enormous. 
and are not just reserved for the 14 Nobel Prize winners, from the discovery of penicillin to the development of holography to the invention of fiber optics and to groundbreaking engineering projects like the Maglev Railway. And of course, Imperial has played an important role in the response to the COVID pandemic. The paradox of 21st century politics is at the very time when 20th century ideology of left versus right has never been less relevant, our main political parties became bedeviled by it. The Conservative Party deserted their traditional role as high priests of pragmatic change and turned Thatcherism into a cult. The Labour Party went through the catastrophe of the Corbyn era, from which, under Keir Starmer's determined leadership, it is thankfully emerging with renewed vigor, a talented front bench, as Rachel Reeves uh, shows again today, and her speech underlines, and the Labour Party has recovered a healthy desire to erase the memory of four successive defeats. Well, that was pretty horrible. Um, we're going to put up some details of the where you can find the clip in just, just a moment. But uh, essentially, he's talking about everything that's going to happen to us with that sudden uh, piece near the beginning on politics. And you were surprised that he got in the world uh, bedeviled, I think he said, and then he's talking about it's, high, it's priests high priests and, and, and a cult. And it does seem rather extraordinary what is actually in his head. A few of our, our viewers have commented that he seems slightly incoherent in the deliveries giving. Well, that may be the case, but what is in his head? Because the subject that they're looking at is pretty amazing. Let's pop this up on the screen because, of course, we've got to remember that um, we've got links, very close and cosy links between Tony Blair and uh, Mr. Gates. Tony Blair companies received $22 million from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Mm. And um, on the right, we've got a report there um, about uh, that's come from the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change. And there it is, Tony Blair's speech, the future of Britain in an era of three revolutions. So who drives Tony Blair? Bill Gates? I'd say uh, maybe Sherry Blair as well, um, because uh, she's pretty powerful. She's got her own organisation as well, uh, bringing uh, women in uh, to, to study in our universities. But what's interesting, if anybody wants to watch that Tony Blair speech, he says um, in 10 years, the United Kingdom will double its electricity supply. And in 10 years, we will have no um, fossil fuel vehicles. There will only be electric vehicles. And in 10 years, we will have to replace 10 million homes, um, heating systems. So going from your boiler to a heat pump. And this is all going to happen in 10 years. And he lines it out in the whole speech. Very interesting, but scary speech. Please do take a look and, and join the dots and make up your own mind. Okay, and uh, if you want to freeze this uh, screen, this has given you the details of, uh, there's the uh, link through to the video and there's some timestamps for, for the various things that uh, uh, Mr. Blair is um, talking about. Uh, I'll just add this one in very quickly. It's back on the subject of Ed Miliband. 
But, David Miliband. Uh, sorry, David <laughs> Miliband, and uh, he's still there with two L's. Yeah. I'm sure we'll get an email from him. Transforming or tinkering, the world remains unprepared for the next pandemic. We're out of sequence with this uh, slide, Debbie, but this was your point that he's, he's uh, David Miliband is here in the mix. Well, yes, and what's interesting in this paper, this paper's only just been published, but what's interesting is that it's talking about an intergovernmental negotiation body to agree a new legal instrument for pandemic preparedness. Um, so I think, you know, and I've been talking to James Rogowski, and I know he's been doing a lot of work on the international health regulations, the WHA and the WHO, but, um, you know, this paper's only just been been uh, published and the fact that they're talking about an intergovernmental negotiation body would seem to be quite worrying so clearly we've got David Miliband and Tony Blair and his organization with Bill Gates who want to vaccinate the world as soon as possible within probably a hundred days or six months they want to roll out enough vaccinations for the whole world within six months but obviously we need to still keep a very close eye on who because I for one don't trust them and who who knows what they'll do behind closed doors yeah right <clears throat> well we're just about out excuse me we're just about out for time but um are these light-hearted or not excuse me <clears throat> i'm not sure mm. uh, we've got this one from the metro kids to explore eating bugs to gauge appetite for alternative protein this has been drifted through the media before oh. um uh, what have we got here? The Telegraph, grasshoppers on the dinner menu for young pupils. <clears throat> Excuse me. And um, lastly, you wanted to uh, put these up for people just to freeze on screen uh, because you're getting some very good little clips of information about what's happening in Big Pharma. We're not going to talk about them. Just freeze the screen and you can have a look and find the uh, links yourself. Uh, this is about Pfizer and Novartis tackling, uh, tackling drug access. So um, have a look at that one. This is about flagship pioneering and incubator with Moderna. But uh, there's little clips about all of the, uh, the various um, pharmaceutical companies. And as I say, if you freeze that on screen, you can have a look. Now, we're going to end uh, with two little things. One is a video um, from a group called Diversity, if I've yeah. got that right. And uh, you picked up on this, Debbie. Uh, this is um, uh, Brit Britain's Got Talent, it I is. think. Yeah, yeah, it was the semi-final last night. I don't watch Britain's Got Talent. Um, I, my son had it on in the background. He wasn't actually watching it either. I think it was just on in the background. And this was last. This was from last night's episode, and it's the group dance group diversity. Let's just have a look. In a world powered by connective technology, it's a global consciousness to which we're subjected, protected, infected. It all depends on perspective. But the fact that we're receptive to the information digested is an idea that simply cannot be rejected. It's a beautiful evolution that can be deceptive and effective. Potentially affecting a life just by texting a message. We live in a world where we are all connected.
In a world connected by the internet, our lives are stored in the cloud. Our memories, our thoughts, every smile, every sound. And just like clouds in nature, there's a cycle that goes around. Evaporation and rainfall, data goes up and down. So that's a small segment. Somebody's commented pretty depressing, which of course it is. It's very, very dark, but this is what's being aimed at, at, at uh, young people, our children. And uh, if as responsible parents, we're going to do something about it, we need to be aware it's there in the first place. But uh, what was the message? Well, we're gonna move into this interconnected world. We've shown you the organizations and documents but there was the film clip uh, of supposedly just a dance group who also seem to know what the future of the world is if we allow people such as Tony Blair to lead us there. Can we end on some good news? Well, um, we haven't had lunch yet, so I think we'll introduce a food aspect. Um, this was pointed out to us. It's from February 2021. I never saw it at the time, and I don't know what the status is now, but it said the co-op has become the first UK retailer to reject gene-edited food. Now, it wasn't quite as uh, positive as the headline suggested because although they're saying at the moment they're not going to go near it, they're saying until there is uh, better defined regulation. Um, but if anybody out there knows what the co-op stance is on gene-edited food at the moment, we'd like to know because uh, if they're still free, perhaps we should be switching accounts yeah. from Tesco, Waitrose or any of the others that we may or may not use. I can tell you a little bit about Tesco's actually. I was in Tesco's a couple of days ago. Two things about Tesco's. Um, there's a naughty aisle now. So I wanted some biscuits for some cheese um, and I couldn't find them anywhere. And I was told that they were in the naughty aisle. So now all the biscuits and carbohydrates and things that you really shouldn't have are all being moved to the back of the store. I'm told by Tesco's that this is the law and that this is what will, will be happening in the future. So if, if you see lots of people disappearing to the back of the store, to the naughty aisle, I'll probably be amongst them. Um, but also when you go to pay, if you go to pay by card in most supermarkets now, before you even get a chance to say yes or no, you're asked if you would like to donate money to a charity, uh, whichever charity that supermarket donates to, and it gets taken off your card at source. So unless you're quick enough to hit the no button, if you choose not to donate, you could end up inadvertently donating to some of these charities that in normal times you might not be wanting to donate to. So I'd just say, watch out for the naughty aisles and watch out for the donations if you're going to pay by card. Okay, Debbie, thank you very much for that. We must end here. We're going to say thank you very much to everybody for joining us, whether you're in UK or worldwide. We're always really fascinated and impressed that we've got so many people uh, joining us from overseas. So thank you very much for doing that. And once again, thank you to everybody who is actively supporting the UK column through a donation or a subscription, because you are allowing us to expand and I'm going to say a special thanks to Debbie today. This is her first time in the studio for a UK column news. And it is quite, it's quite a tough experience. There's a lot happening. And for the people who were a little bit worried about Alex facing the, the bright lights, I'm afraid that's now part of our job. But we do it because it's a good thing to do. And at the end of the day, we've got some wonderful supporters. Thanks very much for joining us. 
there will be a UK column news at one o'clock tomorrow. Join us then. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.